Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we discuss works of horror through a progressive lens. I'm your host, Jeremy Whitley. I write comics, books, podcasts, screenplays, etc. And on each episode, we talk about a piece of horror fiction and look for themes of feminism, racial and social justice, LGBT rep, physical and mental disability, and the works of female POC and LGBT creators. We recognize horror as a genre never agreed to this podcast, but my favorite thing about horror movies is being surprised. And there's nothing more surprising than a horror movie that has something important to say. In between the screams, of course. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the 2019 movie Black Christmas. And joining me to do that is fellow comic book writer Ben Kahn, whose work you might know from Heavenly Blues, Griffin, or the upcoming Renegade Rule. Also talking with us is my longtime collaborator and partner in crime, comics artist Emily Martin. And our special guest for this podcast this week comics and horror enthusiast, pop culture historian, and one quarter of the Talking Comics podcast, Bob Ryer. Bob, Ben, Emily, Merry Christmas! Woo! Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas! Happy Holidays! Feliz! <laughs> Feliz whatever. <laughs> happy, happy Festivus. <laughs> happy Solstice. Happy Kwanzaa. Let's go. We'll go. We- yeah. yeah. Got you. Now, uh, Bob, you might be a new voice to... Some of our listeners, though, I've been listening to Talking Comics for quite some time. You want to tell people a little bit about your history with uh, horror and, and how you got into this stuff? Sure. It goes back a very long way. I thank you for calling me a new voice. I haven't called <laughs> new anything in quite a long time. The first movie I have memory of seeing in a theater is the Eugene Lurie monster movie classic Gorgo. I saw it at the local drive-in in 1961. And that was a really sort of special era in horror. The classic Universals had been part of the shock theater package while making the way through the TV stations. And then added to that, the crummy but really enjoyable 50s drive-in movies were making their way through the second phase of that. And here in New York, we had a horror host named Zachary, who dressed as a ghoul undertaker and had did science experiments with giant swamp amoebas and shot electricity through stuff and broke into the movies in the way that, that came to be known by a lot of people after that. And, and I got to see all those things with my dad, who had seen the Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera in a movie theater in 1925, wow. had seen King Kong in its original release. So that was his, his real go-to. So we saw every monster and science fiction movie that was around. And I, I've told this story before, but not here, obviously. When we watched those movies, I, I was allowed to be scared, but only appropriate. Bela Lugosi, my father would say, he's, he's just acting like Dracula. That stake as far as real, he gets up and goes home to his family. Don't worry about it. And that just changed the way I looked at things. I wanted to see film as, a, as an art, as a construct. How do you do this? How do they do these effects? And seeing all those classics, when I finally started to be of working age, I spent well, 20 years in a record store, and the last 10 of them, we were one of the first places on Long Island to rent home video, including Laserdiscs, back when that was a thing. I still have way too many of those. Then managed 112 Video, which was Long Island's largest independent video store with a tremendous amount of horror movies to the point that we had special sections and our own Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> so we had you know, horror in the jungle and Mexican wrestling horror movies that had their own sections. And we, we even 
were written up by the New York Times, which was, which was kind of lovely. And because of that, we had uh, a friend of our Talking Comics podcast, uh, uh, Professor Carolyn Coca, came over one to tell help her uh, research a book. Actually, she did all the research. I just brought out boxes of comic books. And she walked into my living room and said, there is more physical media here than I've ever seen anywhere, including some stores. I probably own six or 700 horror movies on either videotape or DVD or Laserdisc. And then probably another thousand of everything else. So horror and I are old friends. Yeah, definitely sounds like it. Well, um, I, I think that'll come in handy with this one because... Uh, I, the first thing we're going to mention, just this is our non-spoilery section. We're not going to ruin anything for people. Just tell people a little bit of what to expect so they can make their own kind of decision about whether they, they want to see this movie. Is that This movie is called Black Christmas. It is the third movie by that name. Uh, so yes. we are looking at the 2019 version, not the, uh, the other two. It's directed by Sophia Tikal. It is written by Sophia Tikal and April Wolf. It stars Imogen Poots. I think it's Elise Shannon, uh, Lily Donahue, and Brittany O'Grady. Guys, what in the way of trigger warnings do we want to give on this? Because there's there's a few. I am shocked that this movie is PG-13. The first thing on the adult uh, content warning. Is this PG-13? Yes. yes. Wow. The first thing was the, the sexual assault warning was re- like this <laughs> big schism for me. Yeah, it's it's very very visceral and it's um portrayal even though there's not really any nudity, there's not a lot of blood. The it's it's a very visceral and very realistic depiction of young women dealing with threats of sexual assault, um trauma dealing with sexual assault. Yeah, um, I, I would say rape and sexual assault are not just a thing that happens in this movie. They're a theme of this movie. Yeah, they're sort of the core theme of a lot of these characters um, and what they deal with. Online harassment, that's definitely another element. Yeah. Yeah. Misogyny. um, Toxic masculinity, yes. Yes. The the usual suspects. Specifically, academic misogyny. Uh, There's definitely gaslighting, violence against women. There's only mild gore in this, which I think is how it got by with the PG-13. There's Uh, no nudity and there's mild gore. The cat lives. The cute cat lives. Yeah, no sad cat death. Uh, The last few movies we've been watching, the cute animals have not made it out in one piece. Yeah, I was was very glad to see that particular streak broken. I, I was texting Jeremy right in the middle of watching the movie, and I was like, Jeremy... Tell me the cat lives. Oh my god! But um, I'm I'm still mad about certain elements of the movie. But um, but it is part of a really important conversation, and I'm glad I watched the movie. So yeah. I will say that. Oh, there's there's a particular set of notes I have in here where I get really excited and then I'm, I'm immediately crushed about thirty seconds later in terms of uh, representation in this mm-hmm. movie. There's also, you know, stalking. There's the usual horror movie slasher stuff. There are also highly ineffectual and downright offensive cops in this movie. Everything that you've ever seen in a a Dateline story about cops not being helpful when it comes to rape and sexual assault in college is firmly represented in this movie. (laughs) On and off screen from before, too. Uh, By the way, my understanding is this was shot as an R-rated movie and cut back. The producers... I believe wanted more audience thinking they had an important film with some important messages. And so cut back certain lines of dialogue get changed or cut off before they're said. Yeah, from, we'll get from to those as, as they go. I would love to see an R rated version of this. And from what I understand, Sophia Tikal 
the director actually wanted it to be PG-13 to reach a larger okay. audience to whom this stuff might be very okay. soon relevant. I also remember being 13 and being just really interested in Oliver Stone. So, you know, like, I feel like I'm a little bit more, with the experiences that I've had, I'm a little bit more sensitive than I was at 13, but I do think it's an important film. You know, as someone who, a woman who lived in a dorm for a few years in college, you know, there's parts that are incredibly terrifyingly relatable, but I think that's why it is important. And I kind of like that it's not over the top. You don't need to see nudity to really get the horror. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a criticism we made of Cabin in the Woods recently is that there is a sex scene in that in which there does not need to be nudity. And thematically, it would probably be poignant for there not to be. And they go ahead and do it anyway. On our, our fear level, we say it's spooky as in not scary, spooky as in a little scary, terrifying as in very scary, or existentially disconcerting as in difficult to measure and worrying you about the world. It swings between terrifying and existentially disconcerting because of what it's talking about. The imagery itself swings between spooky and terrifying, I think. There was one uh, effective, pretty effective jump scare. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd agree with that. I think the subject matter and the themes are very terrifying. You know, there's some stuff, there's definitely elements that are definitely on that like kind of existential, like terrified of what it's saying about society. As for the scenes themselves, like, you know, the kind of nitty gritty of the horror, I'd say there's definitely some jump scares, but all in all, like, it's definitely trying to be on the terrifying end of things. So it's definitely not one of those like intentionally spoopy movies, but I don't think the in the moment terror always fully lands. This is a movie that is in some ways a by the numbers slasher until it isn't. And it, you know, is spooky in that respect. But uh, some of the stuff in there is going to be terrifying to existentially disconcerting, especially to people who have dealt with this stuff or, you know, may have uh, very realistic fears of dealing with these sorts of things. Yeah, I think we're all on the same page with that. The conventions of slasher films are there. They're presented well in this jump scares and the setups and a couple of fake outs, which I'm sure we'll get to, too. Mm-hmm. But it is definitely the mood of the piece, particularly as we see it through Riley, our lead character, and what her fear and tension level as it rises, I found myself getting more and more anxious. So it is that sort of existential pathetic. Before we jump into spoilers, do we think it's worth people's time to watch? Uh, would you recommend they, they check it out? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. themes alone, I mean, it's not a subtle movie uh, for sure, but I think... <laughs> It's definitely, especially for the, like, the right audience, I think it's absolutely, it's an important movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it wears its heart on its sleeve. It wears its themes right out on a giant billboard. It, I don't think it's heavy-handed, but it is a little obvious. But, you know, these sorts of messages, maybe you have to swing the pendulum a little farther to make sure people get it. I think it's about as subtle as uh, the first purge. You're on record saying, is as subtle as a brick to the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say I also... I also think it is worth people's time to watch if in hearing this description it has made you uncomfortable and you feel like you probably don't want to watch a movie that is about what we have said it is about maybe this is not a good one for you like it's it goes strong and hard on the harder aspects of this and it does address them it is not just thrown out there and not dealt with so I mean if that makes a difference to you it comes with heavy trigger warnings yeah. the themes yeah, of the movie would... are definitely fully realized and I would, I would, def- there, I, there's definitely people that I would not recommend this movie mm-hmm. to, but the horror element does not cheapen the severity of the message and the, the, the importance of that message. 
So uh, I, I think that'll be a good place to wrap up our non-spoilery section. You you have been warned. Take a second here, and if you uh, if you want to go watch the movie before you continue, go ahead and do that. If not, uh, we'll we'll jump right in with some some other stuff here in just a moment. All right. So now to the spoilery section. The first question I do want to ask, which I, I feel like I kind of know the answer to, but uh, I want to put it to Bob, who has seen all three of these movies. Bob, would you say this is a remake? Remake in name only. <laughs> e- even though uh, Sophia Takal has mentioned she's a big fan of the original, but she wants to take this to somewhere different, so maybe it's a second pass on similar material. The original was sort of the ancestor of the modern slasher movie in a way. It's based on the old urban legend of this someone upstairs on the phone that became the basis of When a Stranger Calls and a few other things. Here the update is we're using text messages, which is kind of cool. The 2006 version is a, talk about by the numbers wrote slasher movie, it, it's an hour and a half you'll never get back. Just forget that. If you want to go see Bob Clark's original from 1974 to see what the fellow who directed A Christmas Story was doing before, <laughs> even before he did Porky's. Uh, oh, man. Black Christmas is worth seeing. It's got a really interesting cast. Yes. Margot Kidder, Keir DeLay, very young Andrea Martin. Olivia Hussey. Yeah, I, I think having just watched uh, Black Christmas recently as, as part of my, my October watch list, having watched the 74 version. There, there's some stuff to recommend that it is sort of a proto-slasher, and if somebody has seen enough slasher movies, it will feel like a very slow slasher movie to you, because it, it essentially is, because it's, you know, what people will, will go from to make this other stuff. The one thing I would really recommend it for is Margot Kidder, yes. who is funny and foul-mouthed and, like, is really, really the lowest lane I'd like to see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Lois Lane that's allowed to say cuss words. Um, you know, I, I deal. Like, I really liked her in it. Um, if other only than one that, Superman there's... character can use the F word, it's definitely Lois Lane. Oh, Absolutely. yeah. That's, that's the main thing I would have to recommend that one. But yeah, as, like Bob said, this is some of the early scenes are very similar to the original, but especially like the last the last 30 minutes of this are way off of <laughs> what yeah. the, uh, the original was. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's some callbacks in the usage of certain weaponry, leave it that way. Yeah. We also, the one, my favorite though, is that we were talking about the cat. Claudette, the cat here, is a, it's a gender switch because the cat was Claude in the original. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah, so we have a gender swap cat. <laughs> I haven't actually seen the original. Did the, did the cat survive the original as well? Yes. Yeah, the, the cat sort of plays a role in somebody dying in the same way it does in this movie. Let's jump into what actually happens in this movie. We can talk a little bit about it as we go. So the, the opening is a pretty classic horror movie setup. Lindsay, this uh, young you know college girl, is walking home alone at night. Just gotten off a call with her uh, sorority sisters. She's leaving town early to go home for the holidays. Has, has missed the, uh, the party where it is... Uh, highly implied that her secret Santa uh, got her a sex toy. I don't think they come out and say it, but it's <laughs> deeply applied. And she, uh, you know, she hangs up and starts getting strange text messages from uh, an app called Yip Yap. Isn't is definitely... that what you? Isn't that what Ang tells Appa to make him fly? <laughs> sure <it> <laughs> don't come for me, Avatar fans. I know it's not. Although I'm surprised that no one has come up with Yip Yap yet, with the the amount of social media that we have these days. Uh, she she gets a a message from an account that says it is the the founder of the school Hawthorne who is you know a long dead old man. Okay, um, I have a theory that Calvin Hawthorne is the demon lawyer that negotiated the contract in Jennifer's body. <laughs> <laughs> 
We found the demon lawyer. He's got he's got all the skills. He's got like he's got the lawyer. He's got the education. He's got the whole supernatural. Yeah, he's got the dark arts going on. I like it. I like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sort of grand a universal demon. theory of, of demon horror movies. Yeah. Hell yeah! Demon horror, I will well, the demon lawyer would be the founder of this college, certainly. Yeah. I will put as many movies into one universe as I can fit. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it, it starts the way that these things do. There's a, a, a guy following her or a guy walking behind her. She thinks this guy is after her. She or steps a, a different way and he walks off. And then you know, she gets another text message and there is a guy following her in a robe. And she runs to a, a house to try and get help. And, you know, there's nobody there. But when she turns around, the guy is gone. As soon as she walks away, the guy is following her again. She runs to another house. But the guy is there already and... and kills her and she falls down in the snow and makes a snow angel and then he drags her into the house. Um, Lindsay, this movie, this movie definitely had some of those like, why are you not using the weapon that you're holding? Why are you splitting up? Stick together. Like horror movie logic. And this was, because Lindsay has like a fistful of keys, which yeah. we'll learn later is very effective against like these fraternity monsters. <laughs> and I was just, and this is definitely, and I'm like, do the plan. This was a good plan. You got phase one, get the keys in hand, check yeah. that off the box. You did it, Lindsay. Good job. Phase two, punch him with the keys. You never well, got to phase two. Apparently it's hard to get the keys back out. They're back in your coat pocket, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Well, she did plan 1A. She went to get help at the door. We saw it. We've seen in way too many movies. That doesn't work very well. Yeah. There's never anyone behind the door who's going to help. Yeah, it's 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 a rarity. And, you know, when they do, they get killed too. So Like, I'd forgotten yeah. about the key hit, about, like, the key punch until it comes back later in the movie and is a one-shot kill. That's right. It's very key, useful. Key punch is really effective in this movie. So, so from there, we cut to the sorority house. We meet our main cast. Uh, first of all, our protagonist, Riley. Uh, who is awoken by one of her housemates, Fran, who is missing her diva cup. Oh, Franny. <laughs> Riley provides her with feminine products. Oh, Fran, my very, very briefly lived Jewish representation. Uh, and at this point, I would like to welcome feminine products back to this horror podcast. Uh, they were in the first several episodes, and now they're back. Nobody just decides to plug, you know, bullet holes with tampons this time, but... <laughs> We are talking we are talking about periods and feminine products again, which is, for some reason, a, a hallmark of horror movies. Oh, maybe you could angle for sponsorship. Although, I don't know if, it, if the Diva Cup is, a, is like a Tampax in that way, because I think there's multiple brands of Diva Cups, but... I feel like there's definitely a crossover with Hitchcock and birds and wings, and there's some connection we can make here. <laughs> so, Fran, yeah, Fran, th- that was already ingratiated me to these characters and their interaction um also everybody's rocking the high-waisted jeans in this movie i didn't know that those could come back but they did and they did with style so every every actor in this movie you are incredible rocking those high-waisted jeans Mm -hmm. um props to you there is great camaraderie among all these girls that we're going to meet there even when they're scuffling a little bit there's still a feeling that they all really care and look out for each other absolutely Yeah. yeah Yeah, we're next introduced to uh, Helena, who is worried about her her upcoming performance with the other girls. Riley is encouraging and gives Helena her comb, which is supposed to bring her good luck. She says it's been passed down through her sorority. I have a question about the sorority, but because like the Greek letter looks like a P and a U, like combined into one, and then with the K and the E, I kind of couldn't help but read it as just like puke sorority. Did anyone else see that? I don't no. think so. 
Okay, I, just me. Okay. Have to look again. I'll look again too. I I think I was just really distracted by the quality. Now this might be an East Coast thing. This Ivy League school with this sorority house that is like Hogwarts that has this incredible foyer and all these stairs and this kitchen that, that is looks semi-realistic, like- but it is also very pulled from the original Black Christmas. The okay. exterior is very. The exteriors like that definitely exist. Not so much the luxurious interiors. It's a lot. Of- of really nice outside buildings that aren't quite so nice on the in- on the inside. My fraternity house in college was a piece of shit inside and out. <laughs> I, like, I guarantee that this sorority house exists somewhere. It's not this group of girls, though. Yeah. Like, this is the sorority house that is filled by the, the, the girls who don't talk to anybody else and, uh, you know, only invite one particular fraternity to their parties and you know they're all they're all in the same like major yeah this is definitely the most diverse sorority that i've seen but i mean i also i'm in sonoma county so i do have to admit i'm my confession time of being in a fraternity in college we were no hazing we had an openly gay president we tried our best to be uh not fratty as 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 least stereotypically fratty as we could be and uh, yeah, at this point, we we jump from the uh, sorority house into uh, Professor Gelson's class, where Riley is asked to identify the meaning of a quote, and uh, Professor Gelson uh, gotches her on assuming that the speaker of this quote is a man, uh, when it is in fact uh, Camille Paglio. I can only assume that this is a class on incel sorcery. <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole school is based on incel sorcery, but... Right. There's an Easter egg in that scene, by the way. There's a, a message on the blackboard that points to Professor Gelson that says swine. Interesting. I saw that, yes. and I was wondering what that was about. Yeah, well, I guess it's just a clue for us. Like, him, it's him. Look at him. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's pretty clear from, like, the words out of his mouth that he's not he's not on our side yeah. of our protagonists here. No, yeah, I, this I, is- I, I I especially love, though, when he says, no covert meetings in hidden rooms where men discuss how to bury women. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's like, yeah, that's awfully specific. Yeah, this is also where we meet Riley's, uh, who I guess would qualify as probably Riley's best friend in this, who is Marty, who has some personality. She's Marty. Oh, I love Marty. I mean, that's all I got, but she's Marty. Marty is... is, She's more there than (laughs) Jesse. More there than Jesse and less there than Chris, who we meet immediately after this, uh, because Gelson talks about the fact that he's being protested. Uh, They're trying to remove him from the school, uh, as uh, has been the uh, bust of the founder that is is usually in the hall. I mean, he Um, says four things in just a snippet of his class that should get him fired. (laughs) This man is just... Going from one fireable offense to the next throughout his day. But he's probably, I mean, tenure. Yeah. Oh. Supernaturally <laughs> tenured, too. We also meet Chris, who we find out uh, is, is protesting. Protested Hawthorne because Hawthorne is uh, an old white man and a slave owner and was horrible. And is protesting Gelson because on his entire history syllabus or philosophy syllabus, whatever it is that he's teaching, has no women or black people on the syllabus whatsoever. Chris um, is fantastic, even if she does get hit with the dumbass gas sometimes. With the like, let's split up. <laughs> oh, Everybody has that issue this time. <laughs> they don't even need gas a, for it. I do really enjoy this movie, but there, there's some dumbass gas flowing about. Yeah. The only thing they don't do is grab the flashlight and go in the basement. But I, 
everything else, they, they tick all the boxes for those. That's the entire climax of the first movie, is grabbing the uh, flashlight and going to yep. the basement. Yeah, so we, we also learned that, that Chris got the bust removed, which doesn't sound that important, but will be. Just something funny to me about the word bust, like when the head, I don't know why. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny. There's something funny to why, Emily they, about the fact that there's something funny to you about bust. Like, they just kept saying it over and over in the movie, and every time it just made me giggle a little. Well, it's something, okay, so th- this is kind of a segue. So, Jeremy, um, mark it here just in case you want to edit this out um (laughs) whenever i (laughs) whenever i uh was teaching when when i'm teaching anatomy for for drawing in um the classes that i teach you know i have these young kids so and also they're like drawing these anime girls and stuff and i'm and i don't like to say boobs and i don't like to say breast because that's such like the word breast is you it, i hear it like that in my head <laughs> and it just feels like i don't know it just it, it, it i think it's a me thing for sure because it's you know it's i get i don't even like i don't even like saying it for like for chicken for like parts of a chicken chicken like yeah because it's such like a sensual sounding word in, in my bust. mind you know, and that's something that, again, like, it's a me thing. I probably should get over it. But I, so I call it, whenever I talk about the boobs, I talk about the bust. So this character has an ample bust. Or, you know, this is where the character's bust would be. That is one of those things where after a while, I'm sure it gets pretty friggin' funny. Um, and then when you think about a bust being like, you know, head and shoulders of uh, this old man. I mean, I could see how those lines would cross. But anyway. <laughs> I also think that, that some words are just inherently funny. I, that's like that's avocado. True. That is a fun word. <laughs> <laughs> Bulbous oh, bouffant. It, it, it makes me. It makes me a little bit happier to say that out loud. Yeah, or, peca- or peccadillo. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, this movie about. Anyway, so we're at the coffee shop now. (laughs) This might be be the stupidest tangent I've ever taken down. (laughs) It's all good. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure they have avocado toast at the uh, coffee shop. Yeah, good segue. segue. Where, uh, yeah, Riley works and Chris and Marty stand around. They're discussing prep for this uh, talent show that Helena was worried about um, when Landon enters to get a drink. Uh, Landon is our uh, our decent dude for this movie. He he asked to sign Chris's petition to uh, get rid of the awful professor, and uh, very awkwardly and uh, kind of cutely flirts with Riley in a absolutely no pressure. I don't know what I'm doing, kind of flirt way. And this is after Riley, Marty, and Chris have this conversation that is again, it's not subtle. It is um, and a very important conversation between these girls about like, well, you know, where do we stand on this? issue you know how are we going to learn the classic you're overreacting i don't know if this is as important as you think it is kind of thing you know that kind of it's it gets a little gaslighty but it is a, a conversation that a lot of people especially women who are trying to make changes um have with each other and you know i've had conver- i've had those conversations There's with people definitely like some conflicts between riley and chris and and it's not something the movie gets into but just by the nature of it i wonder like oh how much of this is like really Riley displaying some uh, specifically like white privilege. The optics of a white woman telling a woman of color, like these issues don't matter. Stop fighting so hard. 
Well, I think in this situation, I feel like Marty represents that privilege a little bit more because Riley is looking at this from being the victim that they're sort of rallying around. That's true. That's true. She's been pushed backwards a little bit into her own self. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. We get the first kind of conversation about what happened to Riley. I I think it's pretty clear from this point that it is a sexual assault, but I think in this scene, they don't really say it. There's a lot of like, oh, the stuff this professor did was terrible. Oh, it's not like what happened to Riley though. And this is also where we get one of the hench bros from DKO, (laughs) which is the evil fraternity in this, to get some coffee and to tell us that Brian is coming back to meet with the new pledges. Um, Yeah. Immediately clear that Brian is responsible for what happened to Riley. Definitely, like, obviously shakes her and uh, pisses off the other girls. We gets also his find coffee. Bill gets his coffee. Founder. Yes. Well, does he get his coffee? Yeah, he gets it thrown in his face. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that part. The, the dynamic here, though, I think is really important, especially because Riley's sort of in the middle of this, this conversation as well, where, you know, Marty's like, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't really feel this vigor. Chris is trying to tell Riley to punch back a little bit. And, you know, Riley is really traumatized by this. And being in that kind of situation, there's, there's a lot to be said about people who have experienced trauma and trying to get them to punch back and, and you know, respecting their time. So Chris and her vigor, she means well. Riley is sort of being pressured here. So she's sort of in a rock in the hard place. But I feel like the scene also really shows that about Riley. You know, it, it, she's, she's still not sure where she stands. You know, her sisters want to stand with her, but her sisters don't really understand how to help her deal with it because there's the, no yeah, the movie, straight line back from from that trauma. Yeah, the, the, the movie, staging of the scene is very deliberate too because you have Riley behind the counter and constantly being shot like through cases and through glass while you know Chris and Marty sort of debate what she should be doing on the other side of the counter. And she's at work, so she <laughs> she's basically a captive audience. Yeah. The movie and, and Imogen uh, and just the writing really does a good job throughout the whole movie of really depicting Riley as someone who's uh, really someone going through the trauma and has like n- knows that she like has lost like a part of herself to that trauma and is trying to work her way through that. And it's just an p- element of the character that I think is really well executed by all the creative voices in the film. Yeah, it's, it's in her body language sometimes when she's standing behind the counter. They mentioned that she's disappearing. And she yes. really seems to shrink backwards. And then all of a sudden, she'll make a little leap forward, and you can see her shoulders straighten a little bit. And then in and, and that scene, she delivers a line about going to the party. Well, what's the worst that could happen? Um, we're, we're about to find out, because that's you know, where we cut to the party at DKO here. And the girls are in the back room prepping. They're prepping their, they're prepping their mean girls dance. We have, you know, Jesse and Marty and Chris and Riley, who is not planning on performing, but Helena, who is supposed to be performing, has gone missing, and uh, Riley decides to go looking for her. Did, did, oh, you, yes. no, did you notice the, the paintings on the wall and the, the portrait of the very young Professor Gelson? I thought um, it was the Dread Pirate Roberts. And God, Marty has a line. I think it's either in the dressing room or it's after the party when they're walking back, and it's a line I had to write down. She says... I'm wearing a thong and some other underwear. Yes. And I, yeah. need, I need an explanation. I'm like, what other underwear? <laughs> how is that supposed to work? How many? How many layers? What different kinds? She's probably is, wearing a thong. But those, those outfits, I, I don't know I, how they kept their I stockings up. 
I don't want to get invasive, but since she brought up the subject of multiple <laughs> pairs of underwear on, I, I, I now have questions. How, how and why? We could talk about that for the, the bonus features. Uh, yeah, I have, I have also almost forgotten to mention Nate, who is in this scene as well. Oh, Nate yes. being Marty's yeah. boyfriend. I mean, Nate is incredibly forgettable. Uh, he's, he's this movie's chip, for sure. Yeah, he is, yes. <laughs> he's going to have a real unfortunate moment later on, but he is, yeah, he is definitely the chip in this story. He is either entirely forgettable or actively sucking. Well, I have to say, I, the second time I watched it, well, first time I watched it at home, I hadn't noticed, but I guess you can't until we get further along. He has a headache in that scene and says that's, it's his allergies. Oh, that's, that's good foreshadowing. Yes. Yeah. So this weird, um, Riley is walking in on this weird ritual that's like, they're painting stuff on each other's heads and stuff and like there's, there's black a... goo coming from the bust yeah. of, of hawthorne which is in there now yeah and they are taking goo from the bust of hawthorne and putting it on uh initiate's heads the power of the founder compels you <laughs> this <is a> weird <laughs> like... yeah, this feels exactly enough like a stupid thing that a fraternity would do that i believe <laughs> That I, I, I believe her closing the door and walking off and keeps going to, to go find Helena, who's still missing at this point. I mean, to be fair, they did put me in charge. When I was in the fraternity, they put me in charge of one like room on part of the tour. And my thought was like, I'm just going to create like horror movie room. It was just a room like we blindfolded, we made people go down to the basement. We dragged like a rusty sword against the concrete as they like walked for like, and then we had like a whole ring. We sat down in just like a ring of candles. And I would just stare at them in like a dark raincoat and a Venetian mask behind them while people creepily did patty cake in a monotone voice. Is this, are you serious? Yes. I'd pay to see that movie. Damn I'm telling it. you. Now I wish I was part of a of fraternity or sorority. Like that sounds, I mean. It's a real roll I, of the dice. Yeah, no one, no one else was really too into it, but I had fun. I mean, I've I larked like, yeah, before. The movies, it'll work. It'll be creepy. Uh, but yeah, the, that's, that's not even going to be the worst thing that she finds on this walk around the fraternity house, because the next door she does find Helena, who is drunk to the point of almost passing out and is being slowly coerced into having sex with another frat guy. Riley holds back until she hears Helena actively like tell him to stop and slow down and then decides to come in and interrupt this, uh, at which point the dude <laughs> yells at her, tells her bitches are all the same. And clearly she lied about Brian before putting on his clothes and storming out. I don't know why he was allowed to miss the creepy ritual, but I, I guess, you know, he was engaged in another creepy ritual. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, do you do you really want the answer to that? Because like, <laughs> I don't. That's This is also one of the first intense scenes because it's you see this situation through, sort of through Riley's eyes. There's a lot of close-ups yeah. of... Certain like expressions, you know, especially of Helena, she's like, no, you know, and it's that that classic thing where she is, you know, she's not all there mentally because of the, the alcohol, but it's so realistic in how they present her in that I am afraid to say no. I really am not into this. I'm not all here, but what is the safest option? A lot of that subtlety comes through. For a movie that's not terribly subtle, this this is something, especially as somebody who's who's dealt with these sort of things, that really comes across. You know, I was clenching my jaw <laughs> watching this as uh, as Riley was was reading all of these signs 
which these details are in a lot of movies, especially horror movies from like mid-century and like James Bond movies even where this happens and it's supposed to be romantic. And it's the same dialogue, you know, maybe the different way that it's shot. Think about movies like 16 Candles. There are these um, situations that are definitely not consensual. And this movie really properly frames that exchange as something terrifying. As you say, especially because we are seeing it through the eyes of a character who now she's been set up so well, we understand how she's seeing it. Yes. And that just really adds to our discomfort. I yes. feel like going back a little bit to the Lindsay opener, just because it's very evocative of something the whole movie does well, is that there's, you know, the traditional, like, that she's being physically stalked and the fact that, you know, that there's multiple of them. So it just looks like this omnipresent teleporting threat. But also the fact that at every stage, because cyber stalking and, and, har- and online harassment is present really just does element how like just this being attacked in all spheres that even by the means of like you know we usually like oh if we get a phone we can communicate for help it's like even that is now a v like a medium through which she is being like assaulted and her and attacked and just like it's just a really interesting and a very disturbing modern update yes absolutely riley and helena sit down and have a conversation at which point Helena decides that she is not in good enough shape to do this dance. She's going to go ahead and head home and get ready to pack to go home in the morning, which leaves Riley in the awkward position of having to tell the the rest of the group that she's not going to be there to do the dance. Uh, They kind of nudge Riley into going ahead and and being part of it. She hesitantly agrees. And then uh, they they go up on stage in front of this frat crowd full of of assholes and uh, start doing this this mean girls dance uh, in their, their sexy Santa costumes. She starts, Riley starts to freeze up because she sees Brian there. It's immediately clear as Brian, even though we've never met Brian. He looks like a real Brian, that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, she, she starts to freeze up, but uh, she ends up doubling down on the song, which we find out is uh, a song about sexual assault that they're uh, at the frat house that they're singing to these frat boys. And they uh, are getting booed and heckled but they finish the song and make a quick exit out with with a video of of them doing it and they uh they quickly meet landon again outside who is uh just blowing off his job as the av guy for the party uh to come tell riley how awesome she is and decides that he's just gonna leave the equipment there and come back for it later so that he can go hang out with them they do they do actively wonder about where helena is and whether she's gotten home finally they've gotten a drunken text message from her (laughs) Uh, that is, is unclear, but seems to suggest that she is going home for the holidays. And they, they go on about their, their lives. Meanwhile, we see Helena is uh, back at the house. It's having a real real slasher setup for, for getting axed to this girl. Yeah, it's beautifully shot, though. The, the doorways, is framing sequence, the lighting and, that, and those setups. I mean, the last thing we see from that scene is a, a robed figure you know, sneaking up on her. A cut from that through to the, the next day. Do you guys have any thoughts about the, the frat party scene, the dance, any of that? Well, there's, I will say that um, there were a lot of people cheering as well as booing in the crowd where yeah. a lot of, like, there's a lot of women that stand up and, you know, a lot of people are just sort of flabbergasted by it, you know, in both directions where some people are like, what the hell? And other people are like, yeah! And yeah. Just, like, people just being shocked at what they're saying. And the fact that Riley, you know, I will say Riley steps up and finishes the song at that point. And, you know, her, her, her sisters are there 
sort of trying to help distract from the fact that she's freezing up. But she does take that step and she makes that decision, which I think is powerful. I did feel that. I mean, I felt the the sort of release of that as she was declaring this. And also the, the fact that the dance, um, there was no music behind the dance. It was just these four girls. They and, rock in the acapella. Yeah, yeah. rock in the acapella. And they, it, I think it wasn't even, it, like it was... It was mic'd in a particular way, so it was like mic'd from the room, or at yeah. least mixed that way. So you know, you really felt like you were there and listening. You know, they their their voices had that sense of space that yeah. you know they were sort of isolated in a large room. I don't know uh, audio terms enough to really properly describe that. When Chris comes up behind her as Riley is is, is freezing a little, and just says, "Rebuild yourself." Oh, yes. she, she takes that step forward. I I felt pride in for her. Like, yeah, you do it. You do it. And unfortunately jumps forward to uh, this scene the next day. So classes are over. Most of them are staying at the house over the break, except for Fran, who is getting ready to go home for the holidays. And uh, says, you know, a fond farewell to everybody before they head out to go shop for a Christmas tree, uh, which is unfortunate for Fran because she stays behind long enough to pack up and uh, look for the, the mewling cat who has disappeared somewhere into there, only to have a, a robed figure jump out of a room and strangle her with Christmas lights, which, Ben, is this symbolism? <laughs> uh, it definitely sucked. Like, in my notes, there's definitely like, yay, Jewish character, followed immediately by dot, 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 oh. Um, yeah. I mean, she identifies herself as Jewish almost immediately before being strangled. It's literally like, it's literally like, hey, by the way, did you know I'm Jewish? Anyway, Honestly, like as a, as someone who is a a very intense cat owner, I love cats and I hate sad cat death. I probably would have been less mad if, if something happened to the cat and Fran got to walk away. I mean, this is the first Jewish character we've had in any of these movies, in any movie we've done. The fact that they introduce Um, her they say that she's Jewish and then immediately not just kill her, but strangle her with Christmas lights. Christmas light. I'll tell you what, if I wasn't feeling marginalized by just the regular existence of Christmas, I sure as shit was feeling marginalized yeah. afterwards. I imagine that must, that must be kind of like bad. how Christmas feels uh, sometimes, like you're being strangled by Christmas lights normally. Uh, I'll say this, you know, like there's the sound and it gives all the men headaches. Uh, at this point, that's me with, like, Mariah Carey's Christmas music. Oh. <laughs> oh, buckle in. Oh, that's yeah. That's uh, poetic. Just a, as from a pure filmmaking standpoint, the scene where she's going from room to room and the cat comes in and, the, and, like, and they just offer so many open doors and you don't, and there's just the tension of knowing that something bad's going to happen, but you don't know when and you don't know from where, but we're just seeing this wide angle shot it's very effective filmmaking, but boy, did it really, really suck and feel bad to see the only Jewish character killed in a Christmas movie mm, 20 seconds after establishing their Judaism. Yeah, I'm still mad about it. Yeah. We'll have to see more of Fran, definitely. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. And in the rest of this movie, does so much very intentionally. This feels unfortunate. So meanwhile, we, we cut to the rest of them. They're shopping for Christmas trees. Riley gets a call from... Helena's mom, Helena has not shown up at home. She's she's very worried about her. She should have been there, you know, last night, this morning. So she decides she's going to go look for Helena when they get home. She goes up to check Helena's room and there's no sign of her. 
Uh, they do find that the cat is walking around with some sort of black goo all over its paws. But yeah, there's there's no no indication of where Helena has gone. So Riley makes that classic horror movie decision, uh, just amplified in the way so much of this movie is amplified. Instead of going to the police, she goes to campus security. By herself. Just, I need a walk. Uh, I can't believe all our friends keep getting isolated, stalked, and disappearing. I need a walk to clear my head. She, she walks solo to campus security, is getting creepy text messages again from this Hawthorne texter. We meet the head of campus security, who is perhaps the most realistic portrayal of a head of campus security I've well, ever seen. Here's the thing. In real life, he's a security guard. He's an really? actor who also, yes, yeah, he works for campus security in real life in New Zealand, apparently. Oh, wow. Well, good on him for, like, making, you know, agreeing to this kind of role. Yeah. Long shot of putting large amounts of mayonnaise on his sandwich in this scene. Is that the is that the most white bread sandwich of all time? Ham yeah. and mayo on Wonder Bread. Yes. <laughs> you know we can't trust him right away. He, he's not going to do the right thing if that's his sandwich. Sorry. At least in Anna and the Apocalypse, Savage ate like his Christmas dinner with a knife and a fork. Nice. See, that's a good touch. This guy was yeah, all sorts of obscene. <laughs> Yeah, Mostly right. due to his reaction to Riley, which is, oh. oh. Yeah, Riley tries to tell him about the threatening text messages and about Helena missing. And, you know, he he gives this justification of, well, you know, she's not really missing. She's just not where she said she was going to be. It's only been a few, you know, it's, it's only been a day. If she's not back in a couple of days, then come talk to me. She finally gets him to take her over to DKO. And DKO is is locked up. The boys are apparently all off on a ski trip. He, he literally delivers the line, boys will be, well, you know. Oh. <laughs> I thought I couldn't hate this guy any more than I already did at that point. But yeah, so Gelson shows back up and offers to let Riley into the place as soon as security is left. And while he's stand, oh, this is such a, a nice and creepy touch. He goes to the door to let her in and is fiddling with his keys, trying to find the right key. And while he's doing this, He's telling her all these things that, that uh, you know, he wants her to know, like that he really wants her to take this video down of them doing the performance uh, that's online because it, it really, you know, was unfortunate. It reflects, unfortunately, on the fraternity. She didn't know this video was online. But what really sells this scene is that we then see him semi-covertly but very distinctly like take out a very distinctive old style key that like he definitely did not have to flip through all those other keys on his ring to find this so it's very clear that he was manipulating the situation to suggest it to her it was was a a very uncomfortable moment because of just how manipulative he is he's being i will i will say the it would that is a pretty effective jump scare when he like grabs her shoulder that was definitely a moment that like got a little jump out of me, especially with just how creepy and just how all the firework right like flares that this guy was that this character was sending. And, and his line in, in that scene: uh, "Many sacrifices have been made to keep our traditions alive." <laughs> really, Professor? It's hard with Carrie always because he looks so good. <laughs> so damned charming. He's so damn charming. <laughs> But that's, I mean, that's a brilliant choice for like someone who's a sociopath or, you know, a diabolical psychopath, you know, realistically, 
I mean, you know, you have these cartoon villains in the horror movies and stuff. You have these overconfident, pompous characters. But this was also difficult because many of us identify Carrie Elways with not that. (laughs) And but he just really 500 percent knocked it out of the park with turning on all of his charms being so calm and collected and his smile and everything and everything about him is just terrible and evil. He Wasn't finally the- does open that door and I know my reaction was don't fucking go in there. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nope. Nope. And and luckily Riley Riley actually does. Riley runs off. Riley's like, nope, nope that out of this. Nope, sorry, I that saw him pull that cold. key out of that spot. I'm definitely not going in there. That is the one moment of horror movie self-awareness that Riley displays. Yeah, which which is what leads to Riley going back to the sorority house and yelling at Chris because Chris has posted this video online and it includes Riley saying something about, you know, they'll they'll think twice before raping the next girl or whatever. They they have a back and forth which is is very much what we were talking about earlier. Chris is a, about the cause and in this case the cause is to some extent Riley. Riley, on the other hand, seems to actively not want to be dragged back into this. You know, she's still trying to to recover, to get through what has happened to her. Is not interested in being a rallying cry, it doesn't seem. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to recover at her own pace, which is, you know, that's an argument that happens a lot around yeah. these issues. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, it's also really important because that's one of those situations where, like, we don't really know who's right. And I don't think it, it is as simple as being right and wrong. And very often it happens, you know, with race in the other direction, with Black women not necessarily wanting to be used as this rallying cry for you know everybody else to to yell about what has happened to them and subsequently ruin their life an interestingly complex situation that is not often addressed in this sort of movie and and i think it's it's fairly well done for the relatively small amount of time they have to spend on it in this so yeah this this whole conversation is going down with the four main girls riley chris jesse and marty in the room uh at the point that chris and riley actively start arguing Jesse takes a liquor and runs upstairs uh, to get away from this. She doesn't want to hear her mom's arguing. <laughs> she goes to look for Christmas lights upstairs. That's a very relatable moment. I think we've all been in a situation where whatever the hell our friends are arguing about, we just want to just want them both to shut up and get drunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She she goes upstairs to test Christmas lights, and they have the most clearly predictable jump scare of this movie that still fucking got me. Which is like yes. she keeps plugging in Christmas lights and they don't light up, and she's in this is like dark attic that like clearly there's gonna be a guy here. And like she keeps plugging in the Christmas lights and they don't light up. She plugs in another strain, it doesn't light up. Finally, she plugs one in, it lights up, and there's a dude right there behind her. I was like, damn it! They, ah, I knew it was there, and they still, still made me jump. Yeah, that was that was brilliantly done. Although I was, I was at first I was like, girl, you're, of course they're not going to work. The power isn't working in there because she was trying to turn on the light and it wasn't working. <laughs> so I was like, why are you trying that? Anyway, what's yeah. going on? Uh, do Christmas lights expire? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I wish we, Every I year. Wish we had a little more time with Jesse. Yeah. Well, Jesse is very much presented as the, the fourth in this quartet of main female characters, and there's not, she doesn't have a lot of time to have much going on. Well, if you look at like the poster, like the one thing I really knew about the movie going in was just like the poster on the box, and it's the four of them all looking like tough and badass with weapons. And it really made me think, like, oh, okay, this is like a person, this is when like they all fight back. And that's definitely true for Riley and Chris, but uh, not so much Marty and Jesse. Marty a little bit, but uh, a bit of a misdirection from uh, the poster there. Yeah. Yeah. The poster seems like it was definitely conceived after the movie was already made. 
And they were like, ah, this last 15 minutes, this is what sets us apart. Let's promote this, you know, girls fight back thing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not what is happening at this point in the movie when, you know, we, we see Jesse grabbed by this masked man. Again, this is not occasion where we see this person actually die. The only person that we actually see dead up to this point is Fran, who is, you know, left out on the balcony in the cold. Um, oh, and boy. Literally strangled by Christmas. Keep going. Move on. Move on. I got nothing. This is this that. is a scene that we I feel like might have equally as much to say about, which is Nate's scene, hey. um, where Marty and the crew have been arguing back and forth about what's going on, and Nate decides to jump in with a "not all men" um, about <laughs> how they they shouldn't be talking about all guys like they're what Brian is like and what these DKO guys are like, and they don't understand. Tell us this rape survivor and his girlfriend and their friend, the activist. Basically what the guy at DKO says, which is, you know, all you bitches are the same. And just starts yelling at him. Also having a headache, obviously, at this point, uh, mm-hmm. which will turn yeah, out to I mean, have been important. Um, I, I also love his, the first line that's sort of a throwaway that we get from him in that scene as, as the camera pulls around him is, I like beer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, oh, okay, you know. okay, okay, Justice Kavanaugh. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Good catch. I mean, and that's what makes it so hard to say really anything about Nate's character is that within the movie itself, he has been artificially turned into a straw man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's real. It's like he's just saying the most horrid, horrible, terrible, th- like most unpleasant things. Well, but to their credit, they kick his ass out. <laughs> they do, which is great, but it's also, yeah. like, do we just have to take these terrible things on their own without kind of context, just knowing that these terrible things, that, that, that these are things people say in regards to the themes, or by the rules of the movie, is there really any of this that we can kind of truly judge against Nate, just because of what's going on with the supernatural element that's right because the the whatever gives him the headache as is is established later as uh bringing out your alpha or something oh, <laughs> like boy, that's... oh which just made my skin crawl i know but, that like yeah. it definitely but, feels more like brainwashing to a degree it's like you know we talked about this with jennifer's body how it doesn't feel like the demon possession is changing her personality lets Jennifer like retain her agency even while being possessed more so like Nate and Landon and the fucking like frat monsters um is really just how much agency they have here or like to what degree is this their inner toxicity being brought forth and to what degree is this just Hawthorne's magic just overriding them I mean, I think that there's an element of brainwashing, but I do think there's also sort of a, like with Mayhem, how it's sort of this emotional hijacking where it any sort of resentment that these guys have is just sort of amplified and with some it's easier to uh fight back against than others as it turns out but uh you know like in mayhem when you have you know some characters with that virus or condition or whatever become more of what they are which is either righteous or shitty or shittily righteous (laughs) (laughs) yeah the yeah like i think that in this case i think nate was already kind of going that way and to me so, I mean, this is the point. They, they throw Nate out and then, you know, they're still arguing about this thing. And Riley's like, you know, now I'm getting these creepy DMs. Marty's like, wait, you're getting creepy DMs. I'm also getting creepy DMs. It turns out Chris is getting these too. 
they're actively comparing these at the point that they start getting more. Riley is told on her phone that they're going to make her bow, at which point they uh, get shot at by a dude with a bow and arrow who grazes Marty's leg. So she's she's injured. So they, they help her retreat up the stairs and they hide and lock themselves in a closet um, as this masked man with the bow and arrow runs around downstairs. These damn New England colleges and their archery teams. Right? <laughs> this guy's pretty good at archery too. Like, Do you think it was Carrie Elway's? God, do you think they were just... He's got some... They must stuff. have at least had some inside jokes like on set about that at the very least. I mean, yeah. unlike yeah. other Robin Hoods, he can speak <laughs> with an English accent. <laughs> you know, I could fire the bow. I have been Robin Hood. <laughs> I did play Robin Hood. So yeah, they, they all make their way upstairs and then discover that they have all left their phones downstairs, which they drop. Does, that, does that happen? By arrows. Does that happen? I, I'm the guy you hear about who doesn't own a cell phone, so I don't know about such things. I mean, Would I everyone suppose, leave their phone behind? I suppose when you, if you were actively comparing DMs when somebody shot you with a bow and arrow, you might drop your phone. Okay, okay. Uh, the fact that they go three for three is a little weird. Yeah, um, alrighty. Yeah, um, it is statistically unlikely that all three of them would drop their phone, but I mean, you know, panic. Yeah. To, to a degree, I feel like cell phones have been the bane of horror movies since they were invented. <laughs> the thing that yes. the, the thing that at some point must always be taken out of the equation. Horror movies weren't <laughs> meant for this level of communications technology. Yeah. Time to adapt. Gotta adapt. I'm Unless I'm we get more like haunted Zoom call movies. Well, yeah, it could be. Wait, there's, there's one the on now. Like really? Yeah. 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 Uh, it's called Host. Uh, it was all made during the pandemic, and it's all filmed over Zoom. It is a, a story about a, a group of women who uh, are are doing their Zoom call with their friends and accidentally summon a demon in the front process and uh, it starts you know uh, taking them out one at a time in their homes as they're all watching each other and trying to talk to each other it really uses zoom in some brilliant ways that i don't want to ruin for anybody who's, who's going to watch it it actively engages with the system the only problem is none of them upgrade to zoom pro so it's only 45 minutes long <laughs> <laughs> Zing. they all lock themselves in this closet and then they immediately decide that they need to leave because they're safe I feel um, like them locking themselves in the closet was this movie's little bit of queer baiting just getting literal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, immediately, Riley decides that uh, they don't have a cell phone and they need to they need to have a cell phone, call somebody to come help them and get Marty out of there. So she decides that they need to stay there. She's going to go down and find the phone, at which point the other two start talking and realize Jessie is somewhere in the house and they don't know where she is. So they decide to leave the injured girl in the closet while Chris goes up to look for Jessie. And Chris immediately finds Jessie in the attic with a large shard of glass sticking out of her face. I was okay with that remaining a discretion shot. Them not showing us yeah. that full on. Yeah. Riley goes downstairs and is doing a very good job of horror movies sneaking around the house and not being seen. Until Nate shows back. Um, Nate, you fucking chip of the week. <laughs> right. <laughs> and she's like, Nate, you got to get away from here. There's a guy walking around that's trying to kill us. Nate does a fucking let me at him. Let me yeah. at him. I'm going to yeah. fight him. I'm going to save my, my girls. Oh, yeah. He turns, <laughs> he looks up and gets an arrow straight to the face. And Nate is down. That I mean, was, that was one a pretty of, alpha right there. That's that Absolutely. unique horror movie moment where it's a jump scare that also makes me laugh. I'm like, I'm gasping, but I'm also thinking, fucking that's what you get, Nate. I believe in watching it, I went, oh shit. <laughs> that's it, that's the reaction, yep. That's it. It was a jump scare that a lot, you know, a, a proper jump scare that wasn't intended really to be funny, but it was just abrupt enough that it was just like perfect. It's, it's, yeah. it's a jump laugh. Yeah. <laughs> 
that movie just, when a movie's really trying to scare something that's either coming off way sillier than it thinks it is, or it's a bad thing happening to a character that I really don't give a shit about. I mean, all of the above. If he just handed over his cell phone, he <laughs> could have still been alive. But I, no. I want to know how many takes did they take of Nate taking an arrow to the face and then just throwing himself to the floor. All right, Nate takes an arrow to the face, takes 17, and down. There's a lot of little things going on with that that is, uh, again, chef's kiss. Like, you barely see it hit his face, but you see it, like, right in his into his eye socket. Just, ooh. There's something kind of satisfying about it. Yeah, especially after the Nautil Men, like, uh, yeah. Yeah, like, after that whole scene, and after, like, he's just being, like, Oh, I got the the alpha migraine. It's <laughs> yeah. making me all gung-ho and shitty. This is like, yeah, yeah, fucking, you see? that, And that's why we don't, like, play around with hatchets. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the next part of this scene. Because uh, Riley stabs a guy and Marty and Chris uh, rejoin her. At the which point they, they kill this guy. And they discover that there are still several more guys. With, with a key punch. Guys. Fistful of keys ends up being really effective. Riley yeah. perfects it. Ladies, Riley. fistful of keys is not that effective. Just to put that out there. <laughs> I mean, slashing, yet. Yeah. This movie may have oversold its ability to work straight up like Wolverine. By any means, like, a snow shovel will probably do it. They've suddenly got several more masked guys coming. Marty decides it's her time to die, so she's going to take an axe and attack one of these guys. At which point he effectively, like, takes the axe from her and stabs her with it. Marty's not been to self-defense, it would seem. She's also wounded. You have to give her give her something. Yeah, I don't know why she decided to take this shot. Um, she got really big into the whole ant, like, metaphor and just, like, ran with it. And yeah. You can't kill an ant. We're all units. Yeah. And maybe some, some of her conversation upstairs about how they some she and Chris sometimes butt heads, so maybe she's feeling a little guilty about that. You never yeah. know. Look, if you're not the main character in a horror movie, and maybe she knew she wasn't the main character, you either go out before you know anything's happening, that option's out yeah. the window, you mm-hmm. go out terribly, or you get the heroic sacrifice. Marty wrote her own ending, and bravo to her. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, at which point, Riley and Chris uh, decide to hide again. This goes in cycles in this movie where it's like, let's hide. Oh, let's fight. No, let's hide. And then they go, they go and hide in the uh, kitchen behind the cabinets and they're uh, hiding out of the way. And there's uh, a guy that's looking for them, decides to turn around and go back the other way. So immediately Chris decides that she's going to use this opportunity to, uh, I don't know, sneak back in the direction he came from. It's a little unclear what her plan is, at which point we learn that he has just sort of gotten on top of a cabinet or something. He's, he's stepped step, out of the way. The step velociraptor on. move. Step one, yes. split up. Step two, hope nothing wrong happens when you split up. Uh, he gets attacked. She manages to knife the guy pretty effectively. And then we get we get maybe the most amusing mislead of this movie, which is um, the security guy picks up the phone that uh, 911 has been called because there is uh, something going on at a sorority house. We've seen nearly dead Marty trying to get to her phone throughout this this bit. Um, so it, it looks like maybe Marty has managed to call 911. Security guy charges into this sorority house to save everybody. It's a different sorority house where this same thing is also going on. Uh, they seem to be doing better than, than our girls, though, honestly. Yeah, yeah I mean, that that's, that's established later, but yeah, like... <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's Lindsay's sorority house. I, I think that's, so. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure that's Lindsay's. Yeah, because they do establish later on that this is happening at, like at every sorority. Yeah, I'm pretty sure one of the girls who who we see in this scene and we see later 
is uh, the one that was calling Lindsay. Yeah, she's she yeah. wields a menorah like she's just kicking ass of a menorah at the end of the. Yeah. Movie. <laughs> 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 That's a representation look. See, it's coming back. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that counts. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, the security guy busts in to see uh, a bunch of them stabbing some dudes. He's got his taser ready to go, but he is stabbed from behind by more uh, masked and robed guys. These girls scream, and we go back to our uh, our house where Chris is attacked by another black mask. And Riley really shows the fuck up for this fight and decides to wrap the guy's face in a plastic bag and uh, choke him out, which is not a move I saw coming from Riley at this point. Riley oh. is Riley has such a high body count in this movie. She is great. Yeah, no, she's she's really leading in the uh, the numbers here. She is getting results, which I appreciate because you know with the guy that she keys. She and keys, this guy. Tag, I mean, there's a great tag team stab it, like Stabathon, like just A plus, Riley. Hey, using the bag is a great throwback to the original. That was okay. a key weapon from, from back then. What's our scale like? Is it like from Dana and Cabin in the Woods all the way to like Ripley and Alien? Yeah, it's it's, it's a it's a lo- lovely little arc. Now, is the bag she uses, is that the one that was on her red dress? I don't know. That's Maybe. a good question. Oh. That's yeah. probably it is, yeah. Because rec- the hanging there. I did have in my notes, like, what happened to the red dress? I think that's what, it, what happened to it. That's what it was. I like that. I like that. Another good catch. Oh, thank you. At this point, they, they use the space they've gotten from murdering this guy to run out Jeep and get in um, and get away, which is, uh, is a nice horror movie uh, moment. They actually do, like, go get in the Jeep and get the fuck out of there. At which point, Riley and Chris realize that they're not covered in blood. They're covered in some kind of weird black goo. Riley asks the poignant question, why isn't it blood? Um, <laughs> which I don't feel like they spent enough time on. She's right. all, like, oh, this is this black shit just came out of these dudes we stabbed. Why isn't it blood? Oh, I did also forget that uh, they, they unmask one of the dead black mask guys. And it is the, the random, it happens to be the random pledge that Riley saw getting uh, goo smeared on his forehead um, back in the, the frat house. So she she knows something's going on now. Would you say any of these frat guy characters, are they really like developed enough for any of them to be characters? Or are they just kind of like the themes and the symbolism? They're they're pretty 2D. Like, they'll have the same jaw. I mean, there's Brian, yeah, I'm and then sure I think that was there's on one other guy that too. has a name. Yeah. The guy that comes in the cafe and tries to rape Elena has yeah, a name. Phil. That's old Phil. Yeah. Phil, that's right. Okay. Yeah, and then we have the professor. There's the, the professor's definitely a different story yeah. in terms of being like a distinct character. Yeah. Even Brian's only really defined by his what he did more than anything he actually does in the time we see him in the movie. And it feels yeah. like the actions and the feelings he take are just to give like a little more detail and specificity like to what as- assumedly all of the members of this fraternity feel. Yeah. Faceless male toxicity. Not that I'm arguing yeah. like that they should have had development or screen time. <laughs> they are awful. Yeah. I hate them. Like the less time on them, the better. I mean, <laughs> I guess I know that doesn't give us a horror movie, but they were just, they were unpleasant fellows. Well, they were talking about being part of the DKR army or something. So they were definitely becoming sort of uh, soldiers in that ritual. Yeah, uh, that kind of language around fraternities definitely felt realistic in terms somebody of like... Somebody at this college definitely calls them the dickos, right? <laughs> yeah. I hope so. If not, it's a missed opportunity. Uh, so Riley actually, unlike many horror movies, has a memory of things that happened previously. 
She's like, yeah, I saw a weird bust with some goo on it before. I think this has something to do with whatever's happening to these guys, with these guys in the black masks. They seem un- unusually strong, and there's definitely something wrong with them. She decides they should go to DKO to find and, and get rid of this bust. Chris says they should go to the cops, which um, uh, Riley immediately calls bullshit on. Yeah, a, a bit of a surprising reaction from Chris, to be honest. Well, Chris, well, you can sort of see it in her face when Riley's like, the cops, really? And Chris is like, mm. I I also did buy it as just, this is a traumatic experience beyond anything anyone expected or signed up for. And I understand how even the most anti-authoritarian person in like a moment of this kind of stress and trauma would go towards like, any kind of traditional prob- like problem solver type thing. She just wants to survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that Chris certainly had a moment of just getting in over her head. I love Chris. I think she's such a strong character in this film. And I think that's one of the reasons because, you know, she's she is a fighter, but like as much as we want our righteous fighters to win, you know, there are moments when they're just, they are in and over their head. Actually having... Uh, reality of a fight for your life in front of you is very different than um, you know fighting battles you're choosing. I, I loved that arc for her. I, it was such a just a well done character arc. And again, and I loved that moment that of like of desperation, of panic, of feeling in over her head. And for her to feel that fear and then to overcome it just makes the stand she makes at the end that much more powerful. Absolutely. To be fair to Chris, the leap in logic of, okay, we've been attacked, now we've got to go to the source of the attackers and kill the magic item is, you know, that's a leap of logic that is a bit odd. But If I survived a brutal home invasion, I'm finally like on the road and then like safety is in front of me. And the person next to me says like, we got to go back and destroy the magic artifact. <laughs> And her lines, excuse me, what? A magical bus? No. I think, I don't think I'm stopping the car either. Yeah. Yeah. Riley requests to be let out and uh, tells Chris she can go by herself. Um, Riley is, I, thought, is walking... I thought you were a fighter, she tells her. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> gets, gets one last good fuck you off before she <laughs> exactly. gets out of the car. Heads, heads through campus by herself. Um, at which point she meets Landon walking around campus. Um, and Landon offers to help, and uh, Riley says, "You really want to help?" Um, and they, they, she talks Landon into uh, heading off to to DKO with her. Uh, he's going to be the distraction while she sneaks around back and destroys the uh, the bust. Meanwhile, Chris arrives outside of the other sorority, where it is there is the uh, lights flashing security car outside still. And she uh, becomes aware that something has happened and, and slows down, at which point a group of surviving sorority sisters from this sorority uh, jump out and ask to be let into her car. She starts letting them in as uh, another black mask guy with a crossbow comes out. And that's, uh, that's the last we see of this scene. We see Chris reach to uh, switch gears uh, and we don't see what happens. Um, I really wish that she backed into the guy. I thought that I assume too. she does. <laughs> yeah. Because they because she has the cross she has the bow later. Oh yeah. That's okay. right, yeah. So I assume they run this guy over and then salvage they have at least two bows in that last scene. I suddenly right now I'm thinking, oh, this is the reason this is the R rated version. Not it wasn't for um the the death of the victims. Is is that showing the gruesome, brutal death of the attackers? Oh, hold on. Ooh. Um Alternate version, the DVD and Blu-ray release of the film 
features some of the deleted and extended scenes that were removed from the R-rated version. Some differences include uh, a shot of the arrow sticking out of Nate's head, mm-hmm. uh, a longer shot on the blade in Jesse's face, a- around seven uses of the word fuck during <laughs> Nate and yes. Marty's fight, and then during the final battle scene, Chris says, suck my clit, and <laughs> there is also an added shot of somebody on fire. There's also an extended scene of Riley walking through the DKO frat house, uh, but this just seems to have been cut for pacing. Uh, uh, An alternate ending that's a little weird is that there's a sort of, I don't want to spoil the alternate ending, but there's a sort of weird, oh, this could go badly again kind of thing. Okay, sort of like they're still out there kind of thing, or? Yeah, or there's there's be a new rise of such thing. You just get a glimpse and it's like, oh, wait, no, don't do that. Yeah, no, yeah, mm mm-hmm. It didn't need to be there. Better gone. Good, yeah. good job, theatrical version. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so we, we get back to uh, Landon and Riley. Landon decides that he's going to uh, use, use the key they got to Boston and act as if he's there to retrieve his equipment from the party the night before. He finds that it's been destroyed and uh, finds this as a good opportunity to start yelling and causing a ruckus and attracting as much attention as he can to him. Riley, for her part, makes it cleanly in the back door and to the bust and is about to grab and destroy the bust when she hears somebody calling for help. So she, she goes back to find who's calling for help. Meanwhile, Landon is confronted by uh, all the fraternity brothers and he is, uh, he's getting a headache. Uh, this is where our where Brian says the founder encouraging to, him to let his true alpha out. I groaned in terror <laughs> and no. Yeah, there were multiple moments in this movie where it was like landed. They decide they're going to induct him at this point. Riley uh, has doubled back and finds that the person yelling for help is in fact Helena, who uh, did not die, but is is tied up. Helena uh, lets Riley get knocked out because it turns out Helena's in on the whole thing. <gasps> Curse your sudden yeah. but inevitable betrayal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Helena, your body yeah. is your own. I feel like there's a lot to talk about about Helena and this betrayal, but it's going to get a lot like, it's going to get explored in some interesting detail in this next scene. So I, I feel like we can talk about it after that. I feel like it, the scene reminded me of a scene from Parks and Rec with Aubrey Plaza like acting like this as a goof and this character doing it completely sincerely and it was very jarring. Yeah. I mean, not like in yeah. a way against the film, just in like, again, in a way of like that kind of existential, like internalized misogyny horror. Riley awakes back in that room that she found earlier where Landon is being inducted into the fraternity and uh, they say they say to Landon, imagine a world where you're no longer sitting in the corner, you're sitting on the Mm -hmm. throne. And Professor Gelson steps in here to explain that when they moved Hawthorne's bust, the the boys from the fraternity discovered a ritual for creating an army of soldiers controlled by the founder's will. And they're going to get man's power back from women. They possessed the pledges to have them kill these troublesome girls. Uh, They needed something to track them down. So they got Helena to take artifacts from all the girls. They say women who are willing to be obedient like Helena will be spared. Helena, it may be the most chilling word said in this this turns to Riley and says aren't you tired don't you yeah. don't you want to just give up and let men run things what yeah, are we I mean right. just because we're, we're taking our rightful place behind them doesn't mean that we aren't needed oh how, how sweet uh, Helena, go away Helena please yeah I mean that's distillation this is that. how we get Handmaid's Tale 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. This kind of Republic of Gilead. Embrace your sexuality because, you know, that is what makes you important and that is what makes you sacred. And you're very you're a very important asset to this society. You're an asset, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like men can run things so we can, you know, sit back and have children and oh god, I mean like I can I can go on. That's what time about I really wonder like about Helena is like a counterpoint to Chris. Like, aren't you tired of the fight versus Yeah. Like yeah. someone always willing to fight, like to someone never giving up on the fight that needs to be fought. Well, the the words "aren't you tired" are very loaded. <laughs> I think it, it, <laughs> it was also very much it. of this moment in in time where uh, some people would rather just have a figure that is there to tell them what to do and how to behave, uh, rather than have to figure sure. out the complexities of lives themselves. Yeah, you know, somebody who can say. Uh, yes, I am right, and I am good and Christian, and uh, this is this is what I think should be done. That's a really good point. You know, I'm I'm a very smart man, the smartest. I got the best words. Um, <laughs> God, well, I I love it in the in the sequence where Riley tells him, "You're all insane." No, no, not insane, Miss Stone. Simply men. <laughs> yeah. And delivered delivered by by Carrie Elways in such an offhanded charming fashion yeah it makes it even worse by a factor of about a hundred this scene is incredibly well written in the fact i mean it's it is pageantry in a certain way like we're we're basically having this national conversation here on this stage of these characters you know that represent a very real threat the aren't you tired also for a trauma victim is one of the most abused abused pleas of power trauma victims are inherently tired and it's one of those things where when you are living this life and fighting constantly you know the second that you have to take a breath sometimes you get chided by the people who are still fighting or still in, on the street or sending their money in or whatever you know doing whatever they can do it would be just so easy to give up as theatrical and dramatic as it is it is very poignant and it is very applicable to this conflict that those have who have been through such horrible shit have to deal with thank god for chris even though chris may push too hard i'd i'd rather have a chris than a helena it's important to remember why the helenas exist and helena ultimately is a victim she's she's duped into this and then she becomes an example and a sacrifice which is you know generally what happens so true and I, I do think it's interesting, this is completely changing gears, but about the same scene. We're shown this tray full of the objects that they've been using to send these foot soldiers after girls. And it is so cleverly seeded throughout the movie that people keep coming up with things missing. Because literally the first thing that we learn about Lindsay is that her vibrator is missing. Uh, and so her, her, you know, Santa bought her a, another one. Riley is the only one that doesn't have something missing. She gives the comb to Helena. We also know that Fran's diva cup is missing. And at one point, like, Chris even yells about all this to her. Like, oh, you know, it's, it's Helena's probably with all this stuff of ours that's gone missing. Yeah, the crystal's missing and yeah. So like, and that, that turns out to be like a thing here at the end. That, like, I did really enjoy, through. I did really enjoy that coming back and how plot relevant that ended up being like, all those little clues sprinkled in throughout the movie. Although, isn't there something a little a little less weird you could have stolen a Franz than her diva cup? That's a little... Well, the, it's a the weird diva thing to just go in there and steal. 
Yeah, but there's a diva cup. There's a there's a vibrator. You know, there's a lot. Of, a lot of these items are what I believe a bunch of frat boys would consider feminine markers yeah. of these characters. The comb, a necklace, of a vibrator, a diva cup. Because one thing that I learned in college is that men were terrified of tampons. <laughs> I remember a guy telling me, like, it's 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 like fire to early man. It's mystery. <laughs> it's, it's some 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 guy in college told me once, which of course inspired a lot of pranks. But um, yeah, I, I think one thing that that a lot of these college frat guys probably trying to get over in their you know trying to take back quote unquote take back their power from women is get over the fear of not to get too lewd, but something that goes into a woman that's not them. <laughs> I mean, everything they steal is some emblem of like a woman having agency over her body, mm -hmm. over her uh, sexual pleasure, over her appearance. Yeah, like it really is everything they take is something that gives a woman control over herself and her identity and her body. I don't yeah. know that we've said it yet, but this movie clearly tracks with like Jordan Peterson incel stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this sort of. Um, I mean, Professor Gelson feels like that kind of Jordan Peterson faux intellectual misogyny. Yes. Yeah. These guys have a thing about not wanting to be replaced. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the professor's whole um, speech about, like, men trying to regain their power. <sighs> Scrubbing men is marginalized and belittled. Reduce the spectators in our own lives. You're running the whole show there, Prof. Yeah. Yeah. What was... <laughs> And definitely a moment of existential terror was when he said, like, they'll go out, they'll become, like, CEOs and congressmen, <laughs> and they'll, like, they'll set the world back the way it should be. I think it was not the exact yes. point, but just the, like, yeah. oh, God, that is, like, that's fucking, that's the Federalist Society. Yeah, and yeah. the Bohemian Grove. Yeah, like, just, like, oh, God, if we corrupt these ultimately like privileged men and then just seed them out into these positions of power that they'll just inevitably like rise to through mediocrity it's like oh god that's so insidious and god that is what happens all the time i think uh, i asked i think it was emily i asked is the is the black goo the internet completely literally toxic masculinity oh yeah. i feel like that goo, yeah, yeah. It's boys will be boys in Ghostbusters 2 goo form. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, the, you know, it, when it is smeared on these guys, that they become, you know, soldiers for this this cause of, of toxic masculinity. And even relatively good guys like Landon can be sort of inducted into this without meaning to be, without wanting to be. I don't know, sort of rings true with a certain amount of you know, the philosophy you see get passed around online and people that get, um, you know, radicalized as incels and whatnot from the internet is, it's something to chew on. Well, I think that it certainly is, is more than just the internet. I th Bob's comment about it being toxic masculinity, yeah. I think it's, it is literally like the toxin of masculinity there. And if we yeah. want to talk like specifically like these college institutions, like these college secret societies of mm -hmm. just like, the most well-off, toxic, privileged men gathering together to egg each other on in their privilege and toxicity, yeah. and then going on to the highest positions of leadership in society. Yeah, like, that goes back like those, you know, those Yale, you know, these college secret societies. That goes back centuries. 
But do you remember the line from Titanic where after dinner it's they're all going to go and smoke cigars and congratulate themselves on being the masters of the world? Yeah, it's that <laughs> it's just it's that old boy network and not the old boy network as in a fan forum for the old boy the for the film. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a that's a different network. Yeah, much more interested in that. Yeah, so. Uh, we're, we're almost to the end of this. So this is, yes. uh, they want Riley to bow to the founder. The founder has come in. They refuse to force her to bow. Brian literally says, it's your body. It's your choice. Yeah. Oh God. Um, walks in also and uh, immediately snaps Elena's neck. So there's, there's no question about the fact that, bowing down and, and giving men what they want does not mean that you'll be treated well. Riley finally does kneel down to bow. And as soon as Brian is not looking at her anymore, she makes a dash for the artifact table and uh, grabs the comb and fucking stabs Brian with it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Only beautiful. so effective, but she sure she sure as hell does it. And then the, the founder attacks Riley and is choking her out, at uh, which point the founder takes an arrow to the back because fucking Chris is here with an uh, <laughs> army of sorority girls. I need to point out one particular sorority girl or like one particular moment. There's one girl who stabs a dude with a sled. She uses a sled as a stabbing instrument. It's great. There's a sled. There's uh, at least one snow shovel in there. Mm -hmm. It's Christmas, right? Yeah. (laughs) I remember there's Christmas in the title of this movie. Like Ben mentioned earlier, somebody is wielding a menorah to to great effect. Eight crazy haymakers. (laughs) (laughs) Good. So good, Ben. Riley uh, decides to go, ends up going head to head with Brian, uh, and he's got her her pinned down and is choking her. And finally, she manages to overcome that dude, gives him a, a couple of blows, and makes a run for the uh, bust, and grabs the bust. <laughs> Professor Gelson gives a, a compelling argument, which is she can't break it because men and women must live together. Break us, and you'll only break yourselves. Uh, yeah, it's uh, a, I, uh, followed by Riley. No. Stairs, stairs, and gender queer, <laughs> right? I'm like, let me, let me counter that argument with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Riley. We, uh, we will never be broken. Yeah, Riley, uh, we will never uh, be my, broken. And my my non-binary it. ass can't sigh hard enough. I think house. I heard it from over here <laughs> on the west coast. Like, oh, was that Ben? <laughs> and she goes ahead and breaks the the bust. Uh, all the black mask powered kittens go down. Um, Landon is set free, and they're they're able to retrieve him. And he he goes after Brian. Landon and Brian are fighting it out. Uh, Chris, apparently, it is unclear. Like in the PG thirteen movie, it is unclear what she says. Apparently, in the R rated version, she says "suck my clit" and throws sensor of fire at uh, Professor Gilson and lights him up a good one. I just now put it together. That's because she spent the whole movie trying to get him fired. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Landon finishes off Brian and makes a run for it with the girls <laughs> in maybe the, the, the best and most violent moment in this movie they block the door so that those dudes cannot get out of the flaming room with their paddly sticks that they were yeah. smashing on the this, floor too just yeah those cricket bats yeah. and frats just have those I don't know why uh, colonialism <laughs> yeah that sounds right all the women and Landon 
make it out of the uh, frat house and the rest of them are left to burn alive. It ends with Riley standing outside watching as the as she is literally burning down the patriarchy uh, along with everybody else. There is a mid credit scene where the cat is licking up black goo off of the floor. The cat looks up at the camera at the end. I don't know if this is meant to be a oh moment, but like, it, you know, whatever. I, I prefer... still alive. Yeah, I prefer to see it as the cat licking up the blood of the patriarchy. That That is just me with my, also, you know, my affinity for cats. Also, you know, the whole, the, the cat also traditionally is a, uh, a, a feminine symbol, at least in like, you know, Western media, especially in British uh, media. I mean... I could also do the go the Yakov Smirnoff route, which is uh, you know here in this sorority, pussy licks you. Uh, <laughs> that's it. Good night. Thank so, you. We'll see you next Wednesday. All right. Uh, <laughs> how, how do we feel about the end of this movie, guys? The emotions that play across Riley's face, big big ups to Imogen and her just her incredible performance there there was a whole journey there was a face journey going on there where she's like if she's relieved and she's you know coming down from this adrenaline and she's also realizing that this is just the beginning of a of a longer fight you know with a story that is so loaded with this kind of commentary i think that it's also it's important to mention there are more battles to fight you know it's not this simple but i mean i could have i could have definitely used more graphic destruction of these frat soldiers at the hands of these girls <laughs> heads falling apart i could talk about it for a while it's it's definitely where i wish the movie had been rated r i i really enjoy the last like 15 minutes of this movie when it it does come out and hit the nail on the head of like what it's about and uh really drives home everything and really gives carries the chance to deliver some truly heinous and also sort of yes. amazing dialogue He's yeah. great. I mean, he was so terrible, but so much fun. So having him set completely on fire was just perfect. Just let's Oops. burn down the patriarchy yeah. right there. Hit that guy. We'll start with him. My opinion of the ending is uh, burn, baby, burn. I love the ending. There's, there's a moment, too, in the fight sequence where things are not going as well. And, and Riley comes out with someone will believe the next person that you do this to. That's why we're fighting it. And it's... Mm-hmm. As you were saying, Emily, the, the fight's to come. And even if she's losing this battle, the war can still be won. And it's yeah. ongoing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that bit where, you know, Brian has her pinned down and they're doing the flashbacks oh. to the, mm-hmm. the, the rape that has frequently been mentioned but never been seen in this movie. And there's just just hints of it, like second clips of it just like she is uh, you know is triggered and is is reliving this is very effective you know is ends up being a pretty strong moment for her to you know say this and fight back and you know do something it's it's intense but i i do ultimately like the ending of this one as compared to uh say the ending of the original black christmas which is a like oh i didn't really get the killer ending I, i'm i'm ready to be done with those unless they're like outright supernatural you know that's just the the sober recognition of the long-term fight we don't need a jump scare to be told that the fight against these issues continues like we already know that and it's more powerful for the characters to truly be prepared for like a long-term fight now than 
ah, the demon lawyer, he's back. He's not really vanquished. There's a just an unspoken power with those women just standing there. Unless, of course, the implication from that like mid credit scene is that now the cat has demon powers, and instead of like toxic patriarchy, the next movie will be about dealing with a world ruled by toxic cat philosophy. <laughs> Sequel mm. to this is Cats, actually. Oh no! <laughs> it's 2019 Cats. Oh God, that's not. It's so very angelical of you. Uh, on that note, let's let's head over to our uh, progressive questions section here. Uh, I think a nice one this time is the, the question of how this uh, deals with uh, people of color and race in this story and with you know, themes of social justice. Because I mean, we do have multiple people of color in this. Specifically, we have uh, you know, two, two black sisters within the main group. We have both Chris and Jesse. And they, they are an overall diverse group, both our original sorority house and the, the secondary one, which we only really get a glance of, of those girls. But they are a, a diverse group of girls. Yeah, part of the big yeah. fight at the end where it all comes back together. I've said my piece on how this movie treated its Jewish character uh, bad, poorly, and I don't have much to add other than I wish it had gone a little differently. I agree, especially how, I mean, there could have been more to it. I mean, especially when you have this one character who is so explicitly Jewish. It was literally you know? just said, Merry <laughs> Christmas from this Jew to you. It's like, last thing she says to... Uh, to to Riley before she leaves. Would have loved to have like Fran showed up and be bashing people with the menorah. Yeah. If yes. Fran, <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Like if Fran was the one. Like or if you know, I I I still I love Fran and I think that Fran was taken from us um, wrongly. But the if there was something else about the other character, that other girl, if she had you know that would have been a totally different movie. But you know if if we had more than one character. You know, you have that the, the actual representation there. You know, I don't think it was necessary. I don't think it was necessary for Fran to, to especially in a movie that is this, this, I don't want to say overstated, but explicitly stated as it was. I feel like that was a misstep. Yeah, I feel like there's a weird um, disconnect between the first half of this movie and the second half of this movie. Also, because- also, nobody mourns Fran. No one, like, finds her body. Like, no, no. one's, like, yeah. no one's worried about Fran. She just disappears and nobody really cares. Yeah, I mean, as far as they all know, Fran has gone home because, like, all of this other shit happens that same night that Fran is, is killed the morning of. Yeah, I, a little line about, I hope Fran's okay. Anything would have been a help. slight improvement. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think the methodical, uh, stabby version of this movie that is the first half of it really feels weird when you consider it through the lens of the second half of this movie. Okay, like, Lindsay is very much a horror movie trope of, like, yeah, you have to establish that people can and will get killed in this movie. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have the, the scene of the, the person in the opening getting killed, and that's, that's fine, that's whatever. I, I think it starts trying to rack up this body count. You know, at first it seems like Helena has died. We find out she hasn't. That mislead actually really works for me. But then the, the like, rapid-fire killing of Fran, Jesse, and Marty... Like back to back, it's just like it's a the middle of the movie has a very rapid body count. Yeah, Fran Fran doesn't even get a chance to fight back, and as far as we know, neither does Jesse. Is you know that that cuts on the and again, I get the point of Fran's character. Like, let's have like you know like a minor character who can say some funny lines, and then like 
I, we've got like a great concept for like this like long like single shot like single take shot and we just established more of the danger and again I, if they hadn't just established like mere seconds ago that she is the one character in this Christmas movie who does not celebrate Christmas then I would just be like oh what a cool horror scene but you did establish that she's from a marginalized group and then you axed her immediately yeah yeah uh, I was going to say it does surprisingly better with black characters, uh, partially because there are at least two. Um, yeah. You know, the, there are also several in the the other sororities that you know join oh. at the end. It's sad that Jesse dies, but it's not. They haven't murdered their only black character. Yeah, you know? yeah. And again, having uh, Jesse there, having Landon there, it doesn't put the onus on Chris so much to carry like quite as much of that. And it also lets Chris as this activist, as this fighter, be part of like just her own character and not something, you know, just automatic because of her identity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think it is also really important that, you know, the the Chris being the lead character, being the fighter and everything, you know, having other the other black characters there, that variety is is really important for me because, you know, you don't have the 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 one black girl being the feisty one or, you know, getting into any of those tropes that that are so prevalent in film. You know, there's there's plenty of opportunity for diversity and these characters to be themselves without having to be yeah. representatives. I, I do think, uh, speaking of representatives, it is not a coincidence that uh, Landon is our, our one black male in this uh, movie and that he is the, the one who is uniting with all of these women against the white male patriarchy here. As As kind of reductive as that can be, I think it's an important statement, um, especially in a movie that is th- this this horror movie that is um, that has these metaphors so present. You have Landon, who is not he, he probably like if you think about it, he probably was never going to be th- of the same status as all of the white members of the frat. Yeah, I mean he's the guy they hired to run AV at their yeah. party. Yeah, he yeah. was the AV nerd who would do it, and it is probably like just chill enough that they don't have to worry about him you know snapping back at them or whatever i mean he seems kind of like a chill guy in the film and you know he's shy and everything but um i definitely i really enjoyed landon's character like i i I like that again a not chip he was like what's that there's supernatural shit going down you need me to go like i'm down you need a distraction yeah let's do it no questions asked we're ready to go and he, he was he was nice he wasn't too desperate he was yeah. genuine. He was legitimately charming in a nerdy way. He is yeah. like he has that nerdy charm that bad nerds think they have and don't. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well said. Um, he, he, as he says, I have trouble figuring things out, but I get there eventually. Yeah, he, he feels very too. real to me. He feels like a real guy. You know, what doesn't feel real in this is the LGBT representation. Yeah. Uh, should I take over Chris's role of trying to find LGBT rep that does not exist? Go for it. I can help. <laughs> I definitely felt a little queer baited. I felt uh, Riley and Helena. I got vibes. Yeah. And also Lindsay and her friend and her uh, sorority sister, because I don't know about mm-hmm. you, but buying sex toys for your friends is a totally straight move. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 buy, I buy sex toys for all my hetero friends. <laughs> that's a, that's that's a totally platonic that's a totally platonic move right there i mean this lady's 
<laughs> sorority sisters do have some this is again this is me grasping for straws yeah no that's fine but... i'm just but i i'm not i don't want to argue with you because i think that this is also like this is a gray area that was once considered sort of like level of like you know fetishization of girls hanging out with each other like oh girls hanging out with each other they're just gonna they're gonna make out and they're you know they're they're sexually open and all this kind of stuff but you know this is on the other side this is um also an example of how like with the sorority sisters these ladies are very comfortable with each other's bodies and their own bodies and they're you know they're they're gonna you know give each other pads and diva I, cups and you're I saying mean, they're not if, taking off their shirts to pillow fight like slumber party mask with what this movie, yeah yeah with what this movie gave me i mean look i better be going for a run after this because this is a stretch <laughs> <laughs> before and after i did i i did write though in my notes of like during like the hairbrush you know fellas is it gay to give your co-high a precious hairbrush i think that there's certainly there are certainly elements of this movie where these characters could set up very meaningful loving relationships like between um between helena and riley um, I mean, obviously not with where Helena's character ended up going. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, like, nope. if things Look, when you're going in blind, you're just taking notes. It's all just the thoughts coming at you, like, as you're taking the scenes in. Sorry, this movie gives me a lot of emotions, and I, I give them, I, you know, it's good. It's good. Good job, movie. You're talking about the scene where Lindsay's roommate is talking about the vibrator. The way her roommate talks about the vibrator is pretty darn gay. You know, yeah. it's not the fact that she's, like, giving each other, they're giving each other sex toys. It's the way that she's talking about it and uh there's vibes <laughs> no pun intended do you guys have good vi- good vibrations on the east coast do you have that store chain no oh i i legitimately meant like do you mean like the marky mark and the funky punch song it's oh like, no no, yeah, no. like you can feel, write, it, like, feel it i'm like it's not on the radio very much anymore but like you can definitely still stream it oh, here in the bay area <laughs> we have a, a a chain of stores called good vibrations which are you specialize in sex toys we uh we do we do this i think there's one uh in new york now i want to listen to the marky mark and the funky bunch song <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of uh explicit lgbt re- representation in this movie yeah. if any. not even explicit not even like sideways it's it's almost like i don't feel like people being gay is even mentioned in this movie like it just feels like i don't know not a thing Chris, um, Chris does mention, you know, the existence of LGBT people when she's yeah. talking about um, the petition. But I mean, um, Chris could definitely be read that way, but she does not express any of that herself. I'd be surprised if the character wasn't queer in some way, but there is no real text or like there's no text or even really like subtext for the movie to give us anything to work yeah. with. Um, I think I think it's you know for for all of the the themes and the events in the movie with Riley and, and uh, Helena. And I think it's nice that the, the sexuality of these other characters is none of our business. It would have been cool. The fact that the movie is about the patriarchy. <sighs> it's probably good. Yeah. This movie doesn't try yeah. to be sexy. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. And I didn't need this. I'm okay without like Carrie, without like, uh, you know, professor Gelson or any of these like frat monsters giving us like explicit, just speeches about homophobia like yeah i'm okay with my skin not always crawling yeah (laughs) the camaraderie between these women which you know i think these days is we should be more comfortable with just being love you know romantic love or other you know any kind of love 
the movie you know, definitely think... feels like a celebration of platonic sisterly love for sure and i th- i think that that gives gives one an opportunity for some uh you know for for comfort at least in that space for um queer audience to think like you know this is i i, I do wish there was maybe a trans woman <laughs> i don't know how they would have shown that without it being like bad you also then run the possible fran issue of them being one of the ones that are killed yeah it's like the established like oh one of the like sorority sisters is queer and her throat just been slit great yeah (laughs) Yeah, i'm part of my headcanon is one of the uh the the sisters from the other sorority is actually a trans woman so but part i feel like the more themes this movie if it had tried to tackle more the more existentially terrifying and disturbing it would have been, and it's how much do you how much do you want one movie to traumatize you at a time? <laughs> yeah, it's the to the point. Question. Yeah, to to when I was talking about the the character sexualities, I think that you know that message, that specific message about men and women, I think that that message would have been a little bit scattered. You know, if it was, if it suddenly started to include all these other things, as important as they are. Yeah, it would be a different movie entirely. You're right, Holly. We've talked about that a lot, actually, in reference to Princeless. There had a lot of people asking about Adrian's sexuality early in writing the story. And I was like, it's not about that. Like, it's not about whether she doesn't want to marry a prince because she's gay or um, it's about her not needing the prince. So, like. When you start bringing in her sexuality to that, it starts sort of eroding the central idea of it. Yeah. Yeah, and not, I mean, I thought not every movie needs to be, like, a romance. Like, I like that, you know, we don't get Landon and, um, we don't get, like, Landon and Riley, like, kissing at the end. Like, ooh, they're a couple. Like, no, like, that's not how the movie goes, nor is that how it should go. Like, these are people who just met and may have a connection but they have been dealing with some way more important shit at the moment <laughs> right the, the only sort of sexual scenes in this are assault um I, I guess going toward that um what do we have to say about uh and whether this movie is feminist and the, the feminism of this movie i i would say definitely yes uh, yeah, it, yeah, this it, is where's it on its sleeve which this is, is this is one of this is like when we're talking about like class and race in the first purge like how does this movie deal with it uh please see the last two hours of discussion yeah (laughs) about as subtle as a brick to the face and it's a brick that a lot of people need to their face (laughs) amen it's an important it's an important brick yeah i mean it's this is the center of what this movie is about like the the enemy of this movie is literal toxic masculinity uh it is explicitly about you know, bias in higher education and rape on college campuses, women not being believed even when all this crazy stuff is happening and people are disappearing. Characters literally just having to get up and, and fight this thing themselves, you know, even though they've been through all of this already. They're the only ones who will fight for them. So, yeah, and I think, you know, usually I list out the, like, important female characters in, in the movie here because usually I can do that. But, uh, you know, most of the extended cast in this is female. You have the four you know, core sorority sisters that, that lasted the you know, last invasion there. You have you know, Helena, you have Fran, you have Lindsay, you have this whole other sorority of girls. So you know, it gives enough variety to where uh, you, you don't run into a, a Black Widow problem. I did like how the other sorority did better. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
you know, because usually the other, the, the off camera tragedy is worse. You know, it's a lot more straightforward, just bloodbath. But it's in like, this case, it's yeah. like a Shaun of the Dead, how like there's that group of where like Sean Stewart meets um, and there's like everyone has their own mirror image. Yeah. And then Sean's group loses like all but two people. And then they show up at the end and all of them are totally fine. They haven't lost a single person. And the, the B team in that movie was uh, run by Jessica Hines. So. Of, of spaced fame. Oh, God. Yes. She's full of her. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about the feminism in this all day, and we already have. Um, <laughs> the, the one other question is, is how this deals with uh, mental illness and disability. Um, I think that the biggest way it deals with it is, is in the trauma and you know, triggering of For sure. Riley in yeah. this movie. Yeah, this is, this is very much a movie about trauma. And it is not understated, which no. I think no. is important. And this is one of the first movies where a lot of the central conflict is, is this discussion about trauma and where the victim, you know, how to help the victim, what's the right step, is there a right step? You know, if I'm sure it would have been more of a complex conversation if the movie wasn't a horror movie, but the fact that that conversation was there shows a sensitivity to that issue that is pretty new in film. And, you know, it's not unheard of, but it is always great to see, especially, you know, and it's one of those reasons that I really am glad that. Oh, it's my cat eating the blood of the patriarchy. Um, the. <laughs> um, for young people to see that conversation displayed, I think that's really important because it's not a, a black and white issue. You know, a group is going to have their Martys and it's going to have their Chris's and it's going to have their Riley's and, you know, to a certain extent, Helena's. It's important to understand that Helena's are, are victims too. And that being a victim doesn't necessarily mean that you're helpless. You know, uh, someone who's been through this isn't always going to want to be saved like jeremy says um sometimes you got to save yourself and that doesn't always mean that you know you need to be pushed into it trauma pushes you into something no matter you whether you want it or not riley's agency in this movie is i think incredibly meaningful and important you know there's there's other aspects of mental illness that i'm sure that the movie could have gone into but i think that you know the sensitivity to the to the trauma here is a little groundbreaking and i really appreciated that the, the two long conversations between chris and riley the one in the kitchen and later in the car about their varying viewpoints on who's the fighter and why and how and when how to be believed what when uh, when they're fighting in the kitchen and Chris says to her, Riley is, uh, some of us don't want to but just disappear. Chris is trying to do the right thing, but is it the right thing at that moment for Riley? Even though Riley is starting to push back, the layers between them and the performances by the two women just sell that so well. You can feel the hurt, the anger, and it, it shifts as we go. Just so well done. It's in the writing. It's in those performances. Yes. And considering how, particularly in horror movies, there's so much exploitation of those sorts of events. And here, yes. it's laid out, and it's the pure power and the pure hurt and embarrassment. Self-victimization is all right there. Yeah, and I, I do appreciate that for this, the one scene that they do feel the need to actually show, uh, you know, part of the rape scene, that it is not at any point played as sexy it is it is not revealing it is not any of those things that these things sometimes are in horror movies it is just flashes and trauma and you know it is uh not, it is not a scene that you are meant to enjoy 
I, I appreciate the way that that was addressed. That wraps up our, our questions here. The only thing left to answer uh, question-wise is, uh, was this movie good and would you recommend it? Yes, and 100%. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would definitely recommend it within particular contexts. Yeah. But yes. Yeah, be very aware of the trigger warnings and what kind of content you're going you're getting into but if you feel uh prepared for that then absolutely recommend it yeah it's literally a movie that you shouldn't recommend to the riley in your life (laughs) yes absolutely you know who who is dealing with this stuff like it is you you know it would literally i think this movie would literally be triggering to a, a lot of folks who are in the same position as her you know if if they want to see it they should go in knowing what they're what they're going to see you know and also be aware because sometimes things are triggering that people don't expect to be um and this is one of those movies that you know especially being pg-13 you know can can have a bit of a a conflicting optics but i do think it's, it's an important film uh just be aware i do like that this film basically ends with the same final shot as midsommar um <laughs> yeah watching somebody watching a building with people inside of it burn anyway <laughs> let's let's uh let's get past that um the the big thing here is uh recommendations if people did watch this and they liked it what do we think they would enjoy i'm, I'm gonna take the first one here because i'm afraid somebody's gonna take my my one okay. answer if i don't okay uh which is uh birds of prey the recent movie um uh, which has basically the superhero version of this last scene in it as it's a giant action yeah. scene where you know where they're surrounded by uh, countless odds and band together to to fight all these evil dudes. It's a much more lighthearted version of you know some of what's going on in this movie, and it's really enjoyable uh, a superhero movie with a variety of interesting female characters in it. It's not just you know one one good female character who is expected to uh, to be the representation of this. They they have a variety of of good characters in it. And shares the same um, shares the same distinction when you look at it on, say, IMDb or Letterboxd of people giving it a lot of one star reviews that uh, maybe either uh, didn't see it or saw themselves in it. Yeah, in the wrong. Yeah. In the yeah. <laughs> my recommend my recommendation is going to be read Paper Girls, the comic. Hey. Yeah, that's a good one. No question. Uh, I actually have two. One. Some because of the setting, but also because we have a, a, a female lead character with a long, convoluted arc. It's the movie Happy Death Day, ah. which is sort of a slasher movie crossed with Groundhog Day, as our, as our lead has to keep reliving the day she's murdered on a college campus. And she keeps coming back and has to learn lessons about herself as we go through this movie. And she changes dramatically from beginning to end. And even the sequel is, is kind of lovely. For a second one, it's it's a it's a remake that is again more a second pass through the material than a straight remake, and it's called Rabbit, and it's directed by Jen and Sylvia Saska, and it's a remake of the David Cronenberg film from 1978. And he actually approved this remake; he was nice. rather happy with it. And we have our, our, our lead character named Rose. She didn't even have a name in the first movie; she's just sort of lead. It was played by Marilyn Chambers back in 1978. Here it's Laura Vandervoort, who is on Smallville. And she has a, she's working in the fashion industry and has a, she's already 
damage. She's already had some problems uh, with with a car accident, has a terrible motorcycle accident, and her face is literally torn apart. She goes for a an experimental surgery that ends up creating a thirst and hunger in her that she doesn't know she's even having, and ends up for all the people who or the t- people who represent those who abused her before. She takes her revenge as we go through this. It is, it is gruesome. I will not lie about that. It is it is R and and earns it. The lead performance, she, again, a very tortured lead character, and you watch the things go through her. It's very, very, I, it's definitely going to trigger, I have to say, because there, there isn't a sort of sexualized thing, but the violence is, it could be a bit much, but it is a powerful film by the Saskas. Rabbit's been on my list for a long time, so um, sounds like I'm going to have to get around to it. I, 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 I The word I, I would not want to use, you could really enjoy it. It's hard. It is very heartbreaking to watch what what's going on with Rose, and also it's sort of exhilarating watching her exert this new power, even though it's not quite her. But as, as a piece of uh, film work, it's really really well done. The Saskas are very accomplished at what they do. What your description of Rabbit reminds me of is a movie that I can't remember the name of. That, uh, Scarlett Johansson. Scotland. Uh, 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 yes. Uh, under, under the, the skin? skin. Under the skin. Yes. Just Thank saw that again recently. That is, yeah, that's just disturbing piece of work, but it's very powerful. V- powerful, very sad, but also, you know, about female identity. It's it's a rough one because it is kind of through uh, the male gaze, but the ending of that movie does speak to some really gut wrenching truths of you know things that need to change and and things that a lot of people deal with. I can't really think of other things that I could really happily like recommend. One thing that is that comes to mind in this case for some reason is Heather's. Um, but that does not have at all the the community aspect, uh, which I feel like you know this movie re- the the Black Christmas really has. What I would also just recommend watching the last scene of Death Proof. Don't watch the rest yeah. of the movie. Just the last scene of it. We're, I guess if we're looking for a movie of women coming together, I'm going to recommend Bring It On. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. This was, uh, this is a rough one for me, guys. This is, I'm really glad I watched it. I'm really happy to be able to talk about it, but got really real. And it's rare that you see a movie that it is this real. I, I remember um, last night when I, when I finished it, I texted Jeremy and I was like, Jeremy, you didn't tell me this was a documentary. <laughs> Um, I wish it was a documentary, honestly. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, that's all we've got for you tonight. Uh, We want to make a quick run through here and let everybody know where uh, people can find us on the internet. Bob, where can people find you? Every week, as it has for the last nine years, on the Talking Comics podcast, which you can find just at TalkingComicBooks.com. And direct email is Bob Reyer, R-E-Y-E-R, at TalkingComicBooks.com. I, I can absolutely say for people who enjoy this podcast and are looking for something that uh, looks at comics in as, as thoughtful, progressive, and considerate a way as, as we try to do with horror movies, that uh, Talking Comics is, is absolutely a podcast you want to check out. Well, thank you, Jeremy. That's lovely. Uh, and uh, Emily, where can people find you online? Um, well, I'm Megamoth at megamoth.net. It's dot com. It's actually dot net. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but every time uh, yeah it's a thing um <laughs> i'm also on twitter at megamoth tum- the ye old tumblr at megamoth 
mega underscore moth on instagram ooh, um and mega moth on patreon um i do art enjoy it also um this isn't me but i just realized what i wanted to recommend is alice isn't dead that is an excellent podcast <laughs> a podcast and book if you want to hear progressive horror about ladies fighting back yes very good choice and ben where anyway. can we find you <laughs> You can find me on Twitter at, at BenTheCon uh, or on my website, BenConComics.com, where works are Heavenly Blues and Griffin are available uh, digitally on Comixology. Heavenly Blues is available in print. And Renegade Rule, uh, my upcoming eSport, my queer eSports comedy is coming out June 2021 and is currently available for pre-order. Yay. Nice. And uh, I, I will post the uh, link to the, the pre-order in the show notes here for you. I have did that on our last one as well. Um, and uh, see, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at jrome58. It's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. It is the same on Instagram, though I am there significantly less. I also have a website, which is uh, jeremywhitley.com, which is... Uh, not always updated as much as I would like, but does have a uh, a bunch of you know links to my stuff where you can find things, uh, including the Princeless series that Emily and I work on together. As for the podcast itself, we are on Twitter at Prog Horror Pod. That's P R O G H O R R O R P O D, as in Progressive Horror Podcast. We are also on Patreon, uh, or will be by the time you hear this at uh, patreon.com slash progressively horrified and our website is progressively horrified.transistor.fm where you can listen to you can stream the episodes live on there or you can subscribe to any of the many podcatchers and rss feeds we have available on there uh that's gonna do it for us for tonight uh we do want to invite you to uh come back next week when we will have uh, Jason Struts with us on the program on New Year's Day, and we're going to be talking about The Descent, one of my oh, favorite, very scary you. horror movies. Oh, I am going to be creeped the F out. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, get, you are. Just make sure you're not uh, in or near any t- small, tight spaces before you listen to this one. Oh, don't worry. I'm never cramped in tight, small spaces living in Manhattan. <laughs> 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 All right, well, we will see you guys next week. Progressively Horrified was created and produced by Jeremy Whitley. This episode was written by Jeremy Whitley, Ben Kahn, Emily Martin, and Bob Ryer. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and not intended to represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent any of the employers, institutions, or publications of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Call 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. You can become an important part of Progressively Horrified by becoming a member of our Patreon at patreon.com slash progressivelyhorrified. If you want to sponsor Progressively Horrified, please contact us via Twitter at proghorrorpod or email at progressivelyhorrified at gmail.com. Uh, in terms of that, I feel like the, only, the one other one worth mentioning is... Uh... I'm not going to pronounce his last name right. Uh, Carrie Yules as Professor Gelson is a lot of fun. As just kind of like this over, as just this over the top, snidely whiplash villain. The reddest of red herrings, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, he's a pretty, he's a pretty uh, 
regular herring. Yeah, <laughs> like, like <laughs> is he a red herring? I'm pretty sure he's just a herring. Yeah. Well, but I just thought it was, well, we shouldn't spoil anything yet. Yes. Well, I'll be quiet. I'll be yeah, quiet. I, 